This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, open them to 1 Kings 19, please. 1 Kings 19. While you're turning there, I want to give you just a quick update. Last week, we uh, uh, took an annual survey. Thank you for all those who participated. We got a great sample uh, size on that and some interesting things that we discover. We want to share those with you over the course of the next few weeks as time and space allows. But here's uh, uh, one of the questions that we asked is how long have you been attending? And that's the breakdown. 6% visiting, less, 21% less than a year, 18% one to three years, 8% three to five and 47% five plus. So, I mean, it's 47% of you have been attending more than five years, 47% of you have been attending less than that. We had 6% who were visiting with us. So, thank you for uh, doing that. The, the counseling world is one of the trickiest for Christians to navigate because so much of modern day counseling has been built on foundations laid by those who are not believers who do not acknowledge God as creator and redeemer. The mantra, what does the Bible have to do with counseling, has a tendency to come through loud and clear. Now, that's not to say there's there's nothing secular counseling can teach us. All truth is God's truth, regardless of who it comes from. But if counseling deals with human beings, our minds, our bodies, our souls, and God created human beings, then maybe God can shed some light on why things go wrong with us and what to do about it. The Bible is a whole lot more helpful in counseling than it has been given credit for. We're going to look at the topic of depression today from 1 Kings 19. And just as a quick aside, just think to yourself, I wonder how many of you before coming here today, already knew 1 Kings 19 is helpful in addressing depression. If it's surprising to you, 1 Kings 19 addresses depression, what other passages in Scripture address counseling issues that you don't know about? Might there be dozens more? Now, this is not going to be an exhaustive treatment of the topic. Uh, 1 Kings 19 doesn't contain everything the Bible says about depression. Uh, It contains just one angle on the topic. But my hope is that if you're experiencing depression, if you're walking with someone who is, my prayer is that this is helpful to you. And on a personal note, uh, depression is more than a theoretical topic for me. Um, Well, I wouldn't come out and say that I have battled depression because this word depression is a loaded term with a thousand different definitions. Uh, I will admit to you that I have struggled with and continue to struggle with melancholy, to use the old English. So for me, 1 Kings 19 is a passage that has been personally helpful. So let's look at it. We're going to look at the stubborn darkness of depression Two points, how we get into it and how we get out of it. How we get into it and how we get out of it. First, how we get into it. 
Let's set the context. Elijah has just experienced a dramatic victory. God took on the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, won decisively. And in one of the following scenes after that incredible display of God's power and authority, this is what we read. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that, his, that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. The pathway into the stubborn darkness of depression for Elijah begins with fear. Begins with fear. On the one hand, now we could turn to psychiatric journal articles like comorbidity of depressive and anxiety disorders, challenges in diagnosis and assessment from the Shanghai Archives of Psychiatric Medicine, and discover there that anxiety and depression tend to go together. Anxiety and depression tend to go together. So we could discover that there. Or we could slowly and thoughtfully and carefully read the scriptures and discover the same thing. In verse 3, Elijah is afraid. He's anxious. He's worrying. Jezebel wants him dead. In the next verse, he's suicidal. From anxious to suicidal. Anxiety and depression tend to go together. Now, we can take this even farther. Anxiety and depression tend to go together even for spiritual giants like Elijah. Keep in mind what he just came off of. He was outnumbered 850 to 1. Demonstrated incredible courage, incredible faith, incredible trust in the Lord. And in the next scene, he's suicidal. He's depressed. You see, Christians get depressed too. That might be the most encouraging thing you hear. Christians get depressed too. Now, if you listen to descriptions of depression, you'll often hear words like desperation, panic, abandonment, dread. When depression is most severe, paranoia is one of its cardinal features. It's fear run amok. When you start listening to your fears, you begin to realize we're all in this together. We're a fearful species. It's no wonder the most frequent command in the Bible is, say it, do not be afraid. We're afraid of dying. We're afraid of how we're going to die. We're, a fear. we're afraid that our past is going to repeat itself. Maybe one of the most common fears arises when, when the things we trust in become unsteady and begin to topple. If you trust in your physical beauty, it will accommodate your trust for a time. But what happens when plastic surgery can't rid you of all your wrinkles and your body sags no matter what you do to it? If you trust in financial security, what will happen when you lose your job? And don't you always feel like you need more than you currently have? If you trust in people, 
and your goal has been to please, what happens when you begin to find that goal increasingly impossible to achieve? See, fear is always related to trust. Fear is always related to trust. We fear when we've put our trust in something that is shaky or we perceive to be shaky. So who will you trust? Where will you turn when you're afraid or anxious? The pathway into the stubborn darkness of depression often begins with fear. Anxiety and depression tend to go together. Next in the descent in depression is isolation. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Now, every commentator I've checked has said, you know, his servant is probably his loyalist comrade, his best buddy. So let's think about this together for a minute. If someone is chasing you in order to kill you, do you abandon the one friend you have? He dumps him and then goes a day's journey, miles and miles and miles away from him into isolation. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. None. But that's what fear does. We looked at this before, way back in the book of Numbers. When fear gains control of your heart, it will often produce irrational responses. Why? Because fear distorts reality. Fear will cause you to exaggerate the challenges that are in front of you. Now, what do people do? What do fearful people do when they've distorted reality because of their fear, when they've exaggerated the challenges that lie in front of them? What happens? They feel powerless. Then what happens? They avoid. They withdraw. The path into depression begins with fear and proceeds to isolation. Look, if you're feeling the descent into the stubborn darkness of depression, you will feel like withdrawing. One of the great lies that our society has sold us is always trust your feelings. One of the great lies we've been told is always trust your feelings. You feel powerless, you feel like withdrawing, and therefore you conclude that must be the right thing to do. In order to fight depression, we have to resist the urge to isolate. I bet that there are a million reasons we will discover why God created the church. In the end, we will probably discover there are a million reasons why, but I would speculate that one of the reasons God created the church is because he knew we would need each other to make it to the end. He knew that if left to ourselves in isolation, not one of us, not one of us would survive. We need each other. Dr. Jean Twenge is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University. She wrote a book last year called iGen, why today's super-connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood, and what that means for the rest of us. What sparked her study was the apparent dramatic increase in mental health issues in teenagers. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last five or seven, five or seven years, you've probably heard a lot about mental health issues during this period of time, particularly with teenagers. Numerous studies, including Twinges, have, have shown that there's been a dramatic increase in mental health crises starting in around the year 2011. And Dr. Twinge wanted to figure out why that was the case. She find, just made some interesting discoveries. She finds that there are just two activities that are significantly correlated with depression and other suicide-related outcomes. 
two activities that contribute to depression and suicide-related outcomes. Electronic device use, such as smartphones, tablets, and computers, and TV. On the other hand, Dr. Twenge discovered there are five activities that have inverse relationships with depression, meaning kids who spend more time doing these five things show lower rates of depression. Here are the five. Sports and other forms of exercise, attending religious services, reading books, doing homework, and in-person social interactions. And she spells out the importance of delineating the difference between in-person, flesh-on-flesh interactions and virtual interactions. Technology and social media have created innumerable virtual groups, but her study indicates they do not satisfy the need for belonging like in-person connections do. So we could turn to a book like that and discover some very interesting things, but we do have it right in front of us in the scriptures. What preceded Elijah's descent and depression? Isolation. No more flesh-on-flesh, in-person connection. Third thing that causes us to descend into the stubborn darkness of depression is identity forgetfulness. Verse 4b, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Very interesting statement. Elijah's forgetting his unique calling. Elijah is forgetting the unique calling that God placed in his life. Elijah is forgetting the special relationship that he has with this God. All of that has not changed as he's walked through this. Jezebel, the people of Israel, may have turned their backs on God, rejecting Elijah's ministry, but their disapproval has not changed Elijah's relationship with God. Elijah's forgetting this. He's getting his sense of worth and value and meaning in how the people around him respond to him, not his unique relationship with the living God. Tim Keller tweeted this out years ago. You've heard me say it time and again. This is a message Elijah failed to preach to himself as he walked through the stubborn darkness of depression. The message you have to preach to yourself time and again, every day, maybe every hour of every day, maybe twice an hour every day is, if I have the smile of God, all other frowns are inconsequential. The only way you'll be able to handle people who frown at you is to preach to yourself that you have the smile of God. Elijah didn't do this. This is the path into the stubborn darkness of depression. Second, how we get out of it. Now some people will approach dealing with depression saying it's purely physical, just physical. So the recommendation is take some time off, get rid of anything that causes you stress, take a pill. Other people approach depression saying it's purely spiritual. So they say, show some faith, quit sinning, get over it. They think the idea of taking a pill or identifying physical causes of depression is essentially to betray the faith. Third group of people will say depression is just psychological, so you just need to talk it out. Here's what I want you to know about God's ministry to Elijah. He uses all three. He uses all three. 
God, first of all, ministers to Elijah physically. Verse five, then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. The tactic is a bit unexpected. What has Elijah just said? Take my life. I've had enough. I'm done. And God's first response is not to verbally try to persuade him out of that. Very interesting. Instead, he sends an angel to touch him, to allow him to sleep, and to provide a meal for him. In fact, by the time it's all said and done, it's two touches, two naps, two meals. Now sometimes, and you may never ever hear a preacher say this again, sometimes what you need most is not a sermon. Now don't everybody get up at once. Sometimes what you need most is not a sermon, but a nap, a vacation, a touch, a weekend away, delicious meal, some exercise. God starts his ministry to the depressed Elijah by ministering to him physically. What do you need? Physically. The people you're walking alongside, what do they need physically? Second, God ministers to him psychologically. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So after ministering to him physically with two touches, two naps, and two meals, God talks to him. He asks him a question. Why does God ask him a question? Why does God ever ask questions? Well, I'll give you a hint. It's not because he's looking for information. He already knows the information. God's questions are never for his sake. They're always for ours. And if this next scene is continuing God's ministry to depress Elijah, we're being told something about the journey out of depression. It requires that we unload our troubles at God's feet. He is inviting us to do that. There is an entire category of songs called the imprecatory prayers that serve as examples of God's people venting their troubles to God. If you want to read two really good examples of that, read Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Now, I count a total of 18 total psalms that are imprecatory prayers, which means they're not an isolated occurrence. God is inviting us to vent our troubles to Him. The journey out of depression requires a robust prayer life that vents to God. Now, personally speaking, this has been significant for me. When I look back at my struggles with melancholy, they have almost always coincided with an anemic prayer life. I find myself more prone to melancholy when I am neglecting private prayer. So in the ascent out of this 
stubborn darkness of depression. God invites us to vent our troubles to him. Lastly, God's, God ministers to him spiritually. Verse 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So here's what's happening. God tells Elijah to go stand on the mountain and the very presence of God is gonna come by. Then a roaring wind comes through. It, it, it breaks up the rocks, but God's presence isn't there. And then there was an earthquake and then there was a fire. These dramatic, incredible displays. But God's not in any of those. And then God comes to Elijah in the form of a gentle whisper. What this prophet drained of strength needs is not a wondrous and miraculous deliverance, but a quiet word from the Lord. And maybe the Lord is showing us we should not expect a miraculous deliverance from our problems. What we need instead is the gentle whisper of the word of God. Elijah, you don't need a phenomenal display to pluck you from your depression. You need my quiet whisper. You need my sure voice to speak to you. Now the content of this gentle whisper is exactly what he needed. The content is all about God's providence. Here's what's happened. God has the next set of kings already picked out and their marching orders are ready. He also has Elijah's successor selected and his marching orders ready. God has a remnant of 7,000 Israelites who unbeknownst to Elijah have not bowed the knee to Baal. In order to minister to Elijah in his depression, here's what God does in effect. I want you to picture a theatrical stage. Elijah is sitting in the front row and he's greatly disturbed by what he thinks is happening. The problem is the curtain is pulled across the front of the stage. It has holes in it in various places and he can peek through those holes and, and get a small glimpse of what's happening behind it. But, but much of what's happening behind the curtain is veiled to him. He doesn't see it. Elijah's agitated by what he thinks is going on. And so God ministers to Elijah. He pulls the curtain back more to allow him to see the bigger picture. And once God does this, Elijah in effect says, oh, that's what you're up to. This is the providence of God. You remember what God's providence is all about? God's providence is his ruling over the details of all activity, 
human and inhuman, so as to bring about his good purposes. Ruling over the details of all activity, human, inhuman, so as to bring about his good purposes. I don't think there's a better way to discover what God is doing behind the curtain in your present than to notice what God was doing behind the curtain in the past. In your ascent out of the stubborn darkness of depression, you need to hear the providence of God in the scriptures. You and faithfully engage with God's word. I promise there will be moments where you hear the gentle whisper of God's voice as he pulls back the curtain and allows you to see the bigger picture. Nowhere is this clearer than in the death of Jesus. If we were standing at the foot of the cross, as he was hanging there, nailed to it, thoughts of hopelessness would have flooded our hearts. Our hero, the one to make things right, the one who would restore our community to the way we had dreamed it could be, was dead. Behind the curtain, we would have concluded all is lost. But three days later, God pulled the curtain back to allow us to see a portion of what he was up to all along, all along. And the glimpse that we're given is an astonishing picture of God turning defeat into victory. That glimpse that we're given leads us to say, Oh, that's what you're up to. If you knew what God knows, you'd ask for exactly what he says. Let's pray. Sovereign and faithful God, we, your people, get depressed too. We struggle with fear. We tend to withdraw. We feel powerless. We forget our identity as your adopted children, accepted and approved. We get depressed too. I pray specifically for the person here who is in the stubborn darkness of depression. Minister to them physically. Maybe they need some rest or a break or a tender touch or a nice meal. Maybe they just need some in-person interaction. I pray that they would find in your word the invitation to come to you in prayer and vent their troubles to you. God, remind us that in your providential rule over all things, You are working all things out for the good of those who love you. And while we will live through seasons in this life where in our 
mind's eye, Jesus is only crucified and not resurrected, while we will live through those seasons where the curtain has been pulled shut and we don't see anything going on behind it that's good, while we live through those seasons, God, remind us in those moments, even that is part of your plan to work all things out for the good of those who love you. Encourage us with these words today, I pray. Amen.